Ever heard of the Della Malonica? I've heard of it, yes. It's a myth, isn't it? A book reputed to have been written by Satan himself. No myth. That book existed. Jokia actually acquired it. The engravings you're now admiring were adapted by Torquia from the Della Melonica. They form a kind of satanic riddle, correctly interpreted with the aid of the original text and sufficient inside information. They're reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. You don't say. Are you a religious man, Mr. Corso? I mean, do you believe in the supernatural? I believe in my percentage. Don't you get dizzy standing there? What is it that you want from me, Balkan? I want you to go to Europe and investigate. The other two copies are in Portugal and France. I want you to find some way of comparing them with mine. Every page, every engraving, the binding, everything. I'm convinced only one is authentic. I want to know which. That could be an expensive trip. That's to get you started. Spend what you need. What if I find that your copy's a forgery? It's quite possible. Really? It doesn't appear to be. Even the paper sounds kosher. Even so, there's something wrong. You mean the devil won't show up? If all three copies turn out to be bogus or incomplete, your work will be done. If, on the other hand, one of them turns out to be genuine, I'll finance you further. I want you to get it for me. At all costs. Never mind how. Never mind how sounds illegal. Wouldn't be the first time you've done something illegal. Not that illegal. Hence the size of the check. Do a good job. I'll double it. There's got to be something wrong with it if you're letting it out of your hands. I have the utmost faith in you, Mr. Corso. There's nothing more reliable than a man whose loyalty can be bought for hard cash. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 357, The Ninth Gate. And this is listener request number 55, courtesy of our old friend Aaron, who has slowly become one of the number one listeners with the amount of listener requests he's put in. Yeah, he's certainly on the uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, a Hall of Famer, I would say. We're back, just like we said we'd be back. Yeah, so elephant in the room. <laughs> if you follow us on X, at Greatest Pod, you may have seen my tweet from the other night 
where I said that we just recorded a two-hour episode that we're going to have to redo. Well, oh. this is the redo. Yeah. This is the Ninth Gate, take two. Absolutely brutal to be back here. We are, of course, recording this on Friday, uh-huh. February 2nd. Time keeps on slipping. Groundhog Day. Yes. And that's what it feels like right now. Yeah, we're yeah. doing this again on Groundhog mm-hmm. Day. We made all kinds of wild predictions about when we would be able to get people's listener requests posted. We've already messed up one we month into the year. past that. Thankfully, we did reach out to Aaron to tell him the reasons for the delay. So what happened was we recorded a two-hour episode on the Ninth Gate a couple of nights ago, and when I went to move the file from GarageBand, which is the pro- the program we use to record a podcast, which is weird enough. I'm sure most people who do podcasts don't even use oh, yeah. something so ridiculous. But anyway, that wasn't the issue. The issue was that Matt's microphone was not recording. <laughs> it was like, if someone wanted to experience what would the episodes be like without Matt, you could have had that. Yeah. And- people clamoring for it. <laughs> Despite the fact that many listeners have privately emailed me and asked for Matt-free episodes. <laughs> a Matt-dectomy? It was too weird. It was yeah. weird initially, immediately from the first second because I'm pausing and then you can kind of hear Matt only being picked up on my mic. So Easy. it was unusable. Less is more. So we're redoing the Ninth Gate. This is something we haven't had to do in a very, very, very long time. And we've never really had to do it for this reason. So No, it's tough. I'm not even going to try to re-say some of the things that I said before because I just... its No, just approach it as a, if yeah. it's all new. It's so unnatural to me to know that I said something before and then pretend like I'm saying it for the first time. Yeah, just don't even worry about it. This, we're no, just doing it for the first time. Yeah. I'm sure there was no gold for me. You know? No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, let me let you in on a little secret. It wasn't the worst thing ever that we had to redo this, in my opinion. I wasn't thrilled when we hit stop on the recording, even though we were going for two hours. I thought we found our flow, but when I'm driving home and I get a phone call from you, and it's like approaching midnight, well, what can this be? Yeah. I'm like, did I forget my wallet? Did something wild happen in the world that he has to tell me about? Yeah. Somewhere down the list I got to, or are we going to have to re-record this thing? (laughs) It's the worst nightmare. Anyway, Aaron asked if he could have a copy of the unusable recording, and initially I did tell him yes, but I'm telling him now on the podcast, probably not. There's a lot of reasons why. Primarily, when we record, we've gotten very used to the fact that there is now a safety net of editing. I don't think we said anything offensive. I'm not indicating that, but who knows? We may say personal things. We may have started trashing Aaron. (laughs) <laughs> no, we didn't do that, but <laughs> who knows? I have no idea. So yeah, right. I don't want to have to go through and listen to it and edit it and make it sound better and then try to figure out what to do with the silence with Matt's voice. I don't know. It's too much. So sorry, Aaron. We're willing to go the extra mile in yeah. a lot of ways, but just take this as the finished product. Know that it's better. So let's get into the Ninth Gate a little bit. This is a first watch for both... Matt and myself. So yeah. Aaron has introduced us to another film, just like The Brotherhood of the Wolf. That does not happen a lot. Yeah, so that's always fun for us and interesting. And I think we both enjoyed it. It has a very interesting, unique vibe to it, which totally. we talked about a lot before. But I think 
very 70s. Yeah. Oddly reminiscent of another filmmaker from that era coming back in 99 with Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut with mm-hmm. secret societies and then the idea yeah. of ceremonies and rituals and robes. Ritualistic sex cults. Things like that. My familiarity with this movie was really, it was one of those DVDs that I always saw when I would go DVD shopping every weekend at Walmart. And it was always out, and I was never intrigued by the cover art. I was always like, eh, I don't think this is for me. Even though I probably bought every other DVD that they had. (laughs) Yeah, once we got into it, I was completely captivated. It has a weird feel that it's like out of time, and very of a specific time, the production value of it. Johnny Depp's performance is strange. Tonally, it's strange, but it it definitely keeps you intrigued. Before we dive into the Ninth Gate, let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod. Email us, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'll be reading an email from Aaron shortly, finally hearing from him after all of these requests. We'd love to read an email from you on a future episode greatestpod at gmail.com. We don't really have a big backlog at the moment, so you might be able to get on pretty quick. How about that? If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on either of those places. And if you have a listener request of your own and you'd like to be just like Aaron, you can reach out to us. We are now charging $100 for a feature film pretty much any length, although if it's something really crazy, we may have to negotiate as long as it's something we can track down on streaming or somewhere else easily, nothing too obscure, I guess. Yeah, we've uh, priced our product out of the market. Seems like maybe we have, but right now we're just offering one more for 2024. If we fill that slot, maybe we'll add on another one later in the year. We're not completely slamming the door, but it doesn't yeah. seem as if $100 is going to really motivate anyone right well, now. We'll see so. what happens. Interest rates could still go down this year. That's true. And then maybe we'll get some new listeners. Yeah. (laughs) Although we've been going at such a relaxed rate now. That's slowing down even more due to all sorts of issues. Yeah. Well, look, we're going to try to have an episode every week for the rest of the month, at least one per week. They may not always come out on the same day, but you can never predict what's going to (laughs) happen. That's what's great about this show. Now that we've gone to a more normal, reasonable yeah. tempo, fair. there's no guarantee on how big the breaks in between the episodes are going to be. <laughs> anyway, let's get into this. Enough bullshit, please. Matt, if you can remember, try to remind me to talk about the Roadhouse trailer at the end of the episode oh, yeah. for the new Roadhouse. If we end up forgetting, we'll talk about it in a future episode. we got a few more weeks until it actually comes out. Anyway, let's get into it. The Ninth Gate, 1999, directed by Roman Polanski, everyone's favorite. This is a movie that is not only directed by Polanski, but stars another sweetheart, Johnny Depp. True. I don't really have much of an opinion on the things that Johnny Depp's been accused of. I didn't really follow that trial or anything. It was all kind of weird and horrifying. I think that's a fair summary. We've already given our brief takes on... The Polanski stuff. We're not really the show to go into detail about all the things he's accused of. It's sort of irrelevant to what we do. We're just sort of talking about this movie, and that's it. 
Not but addressing it. Thank, thanks to Aaron for yeah. putting him in this, in this awkward position. <laughs> the double, the double shot. This was Polanski's return to the occult finally after Rosemary's Baby and the Fearless Vampire Killers. Screenplay was by Polanski and one of his frequent collaborators, John Brown. John, they reworked a, a screenplay by Enrique Urbizu based on the 1993 novel called El Club Dumas by Artero Perez Reverte. Was this uh, literature you were familiar with? No, I was not. This was not originally an English novel. I don't know. I'm sure it's been translated, but I don't know anything about it. Other than to say, from what I have learned, it seems as if the film is significantly different and really just focuses on one element of the book. The budget for the movie was $38 million. The box office came in at $58.4 million, although much of that was from overseas. This was not really a huge hit in the States. Yeah, it's definitely not a movie I remember ever seeing a trailer for or anything. It just was not on the radar for me. No, but we were still pretty young. No, I know, but I went to the movies a lot in the late 90s. Okay. Yeah. There was probably a lot of R-rated movies that went right by me that well, I've never even yeah. paid attention to. For those of you who have not already seen The Ninth Gate or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, you can find it streaming for free right now on both the Roku channel and our old favorite Tubi. Now, when we last recorded, oh, that's right. which I just <laughs> Flipped out about us said, not saying. Do not do this. I got a talking to about not doing this. No, that was okay. for both of us. Okay. Don't feel like it was just for you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. When we last recorded, mm-hmm. we basically gave a free commercial for Tubi, which I want to avoid doing yeah. this time around. But we do love Tubi, Tubi and it comes great. in handy. Yeah. It's really the catch all for where could this possibly be streaming? All oh, sorts of check Tubi. Great finds. It's, it's like the closest thing to me of. <laughs> Going to the old video rental store and like going to the sections where you're seeing movies, you know, the Island of Misfit Toys of movies. You just find stuff that is not on any other platform. As I alluded to, The Ninth Gate initially was not a blockbuster. It did not receive particularly favorable reviews. I think it has around 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. Most of the box office came from overseas. However, Like so many of the films we cover on this podcast, this movie did develop a bit of a cult following, and I think people recognize it now as this fun, strange, late 90s doomsday-type film that goes alongside Stigmata and End of Days and a lot of these things that were being released at the time. It just so happens that... This one certainly has a more... The guy that directed Chinatown made this one. (laughs) Yeah, with the other ones, though, I think of those as pretty dark-feeling movies. This seems kind of kitschy. Part of the disconnect between audiences in this film, probably in 99, is the bizarre tone where you have maybe an unlikable lead character who is really, what's the word I'm thinking of, sanded down to be yeah, just... a lot less edgy than he evidently is in the book. And all of the griminess of that is removed, so then it feels a lot lighter. But he's also really not bringing any charisma either. It's very understated. Yeah, it's a very understated performance from 
Depp, which I guess caused a little bit of friction between him and Polanski, who was expecting something maybe a little different. It also stands out because of that. For a lot of younger audiences, they're probably more familiar with Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow, as the guy from The Lone Ranger, as these big, huge, colorful, over-the-top, ridiculous characters, which is the actor he would become. Well, yeah, at this point it was closer to like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, yeah, but that's also a huge character, too. But this was more of his... Secret Window era. (laughs) Well, that was a film that I often got mixed up with this one, even though I think that came out after this, right? I think so, yeah. That was more of a 2004 or something. Oh, I don't know. I can't. I didn't think it was <laughs> like, that you're late. Like, oh, like <laughs> I didn't think it was that late, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? What it, like, it's <laughs> now so we got to settle this. <laughs> settle it. I don't care. I, I know, don't care. I need I to, yeah, but we, it needs to be. 2004, dead on. <laughs> I have a thing where if I see it once I believe you had that one. <laughs> in print, I can kind of, it just yeah. sticks with years with movies for some reason. I don't know why. We're seeing a skinny Johnny Depp in The Ninth Gate, baggy suits with a very 90s-looking goatee. Yeah, his attire and look is of the time. Yeah, it's strange to associate fashion and those types of things with a tragedy like 9-11, but there's just a very distinct pre- and post-9-11 vibe to me when it comes to style and fashion. Yeah. And there's just something about the way that Depp looks in this film that could never have happened post-9-11. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, yeah, that's true. That's what the terrorists took away from us, baggy oh, no. suits. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the plot itself, I wanted to read an email from Aaron, who has requested The Ninth Gate. But before I do, I figured a good transition would be to remind everyone of all of the listener requests that we have so far on the schedule for 2024. I recognize that this is kind of clumsy to start in on The Ninth Gate discussion and then go back to a listener request thing. But Aaron comes up so many goddamn times on the listener request schedule that He's been very generous. I figured it would be a fun way to to transition into us all getting to know him with his own words. He's really uh, funding the show, keeping the lights on here. So now that we have closed the book on the January listener requests, February brings us Sarah and Chris S. March brings us Chris K. and Martha. April brings us Theodore and Keith. May is the return of Aaron plus RJ. July, Aaron again. August is open at the moment, and then September, Aaron again. Then we get into the whole thing of, are we going to do a listener request for both August and December? I guess we'll see, but... Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully just one more. Yeah. Or whatever. Or maybe no more. But that's what we have so far. If you'd like to be added to that, you can be. You already know how. If you have already paid us and you're not on that list, then please reach out immediately, greatestpod, at gmail.com, which is where Aaron sent this email because I asked him to because one of the things that I would like to hear from our listeners Mm. is why did you pick this listener request? What is your relationship with the podcast and with movies in your life? I know. How'd you find us? We love that. Oh, yeah. And Aaron hit them all here. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. Aaron writes, hello to the cinephile ghoul and Matt. 
Yeah, I don't get this. I guess I'm the cinephile ghoul. Is that a compliment? Well, I'm assuming he's considering himself one as well, based yeah. on the content of this email. I guess I'm happy to not be in the ghoul clique. Although these days you're probably more of a cinephile ghoul than me. Yeah. I'm more of a Bob's Burgers ghoul. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry it's taken me so long to send an email. There's no good excuse. I'm just a bit of a procrastinator. Well, as are we now these days. It's that Obviously. era. We're, we're in the procrastination era now. A few fun facts to begin. I am also one of the 16 people who saw Rabbit Hole in the theater. That's a deep cut because I'm sure we referenced that at some point. Being <laughs> one of the only people to see it in the theater. <laughs> what a memorable theater experience. Just weeknights yeah. piling in a vehicle. In Some like bros the winter, yeah. To the one theater, probably listening in to uh, something like that. Last Friday night by Katy Perry on repeat. Yeah, that was the weird juxtaposition. <laughs> was that was our Katy Perry days? Aaron also writes. I already owned Doctor T and the Women on DVD before listening to that episode. Wow. Well, cinephile ghoul confirmed. Yeah, definitely, and also a similar vibe to this movie where. Tonally, you're you're not sure what the hell you're getting out of this. I watched Say by the Bell during its initial run, and I used to be an avid cinema visitor with a peak of 162 movies in 2004. Get out. And a daily high of six achieved on four different occasions. Well, he beats me there for sure. Yeah, and I didn't think anybody could be more of a loser than you. <laughs> yeah. I think the most I ever saw in the theater was 100. No, that, and it just seems like... I remember when you were doing that and it just seemed like such a time suck. And by the end, when you're going to see stuff Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it just seemed exhausting. The most, I think, was four in a day, which I think I've only done once, maybe yeah. twice. Also, I listened to your Misery episode while driving in a mini blizzard through hilly terrain. Oh, cozy. I first discovered you guys two years ago when looking for a, a podcast discussing one of my favorite movies, American Beauty. Maybe not the most popular opinion to have these days. But I agree. I still think American Beauty is great. I don't think I've watched it since we did it on the podcast. Same. But whatever. I'm not going to have a, an American Beauty discussion right now. <laughs> I loved the episode and have been hooked since. I have almost finished listening to your entire catalog. Wow. That's commendable. There are too many favorite episodes, not counting my listener requests to name, but revisited silence of the lambs which he mentions is a top 10 all-time fave that is a good up i agree with that well i think he means the movie is a oh. top 10 all-time favorite movie <laughs> but yes he's listing it as one of his yeah. favorite episodes psycho which is his favorite hitchcock film halloween which is his favorite horror film and american psycho which he notes as a top 20 film read the book first big brady sinellis fan and saw it opening night Aaron, you might be a little older than us because I don't think I would have been able to see American Psycho in the theater opening night. No. And I did not read the book until after seeing the movie. I've listened to countless podcasts about numerous subjects in my day, and The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever is by far my favorite. I'd love to hear it. I really enjoy the way you two interact, the way your passion for movies shines through, and the detail you go into when discussing a film or show, he adds, I very much enjoy the longer episodes. There's somebody out there that does. Now for some listener request explanations. 
all of my choices, past and future, are in my top 25 all-time favorite movies or star a favorite actor or actress, and it's hard to find podcasts that have talked about them. It seems logical to have my all-time favorite podcast discuss my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, I, that makes sense based on the movies that Aaron has requested because it does seem as if he selects ones that there probably are not other podcasts covering as much. Which well, has been a theme of this show. At least it used is, to be. It does seem to be a way that people find this show. Oh, yeah. We're not going to be the first thing that comes up when you search for Jaws on Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Although that is, One I think, our, our, our episodes, biggest yeah. episode, but still. I saw Brotherhood of the Wolf in the theater when it first came out and has been one of my favorite movies since. Currently number two. I even wrote a paper on it in college. I love everything about it. The characters, the score, the action, the scenery. Most people I've met or talked to have never heard of this movie, so I'm always happy to introduce them to it. I'm glad you guys liked it. I knew you would appreciate the transition of Monica Bellucci's chest into snow-covered mountains. That was artistic, (laughs) yeah. I think Michael Clayton is a severely underrated thriller, and I enjoy the twists and turns every time I watch it. Definitely. My appreciation for Michael Clayton has gone through the roof since doing it for the show. The performances are amazing, and I think it should have received more recognition. Love Actually is my favorite movie, and it has been since I first saw it in the theater. The cast is amazing, the score and soundtrack are fantastic, and the performances are unforgettable. I care about every single storyline. Hugh Grant and Bill Nighy's are my favorites, as were mine, I believe. And I really like how they are each connected to at least one other story in some way. Today's movie, The Ninth Gate, is my favorite Johnny Depp film. I saw it in the theater and couldn't wait to own it. I really like neo-noir, and I think Frank Langella is perfectly cast. My future selections include, so a little bit of a tease for some go. future episodes. Some clues. My favorite Audrey Hepburn movie. She's my favorite actress. My second favorite Hitchcock film, While Psycho Remains Number One. And my favorite fall season movie. Very specific favorites. For sure, and some of those clues are more specific than others. Fall movie. That's pretty broad. For physical media spotlight, I did, of course, pick up Brotherhood of the Wolf in 4K from Shout Factory as soon as it was available. This topic has now been mentioned on this podcast three times. (laughs) For a recommendation, I would suggest Alien vs. Predator so you can round out your Alien movie rankings. It's not an amazing movie, but I thoroughly enjoy it, and it never gets old. Well, unfortunately, I would have to watch both Alien versus Predator movies, so it's kind of a big ask. Yeah, I did see Alien versus Predator in the theater. As for Letterboxd, you are my only two followers, and you are the only two I follow. Well, now you're pretty much just down to Matt, because I don't even post on there anymore. You'll be back. Finally, please use some of the listener request proceeds to help fund your Wild Things remake. <laughs> if it ever comes out, I will be the first in line to see it. Yeah, we'll get on that. I'll reach out to Sydney Sweeney and see if she's interested. And you, listen, it, the money we're generating from these listener requests <laughs> is definitely enough to fund a movie. I'm still borrowing to pay back for these microphones. <laughs> they Please. might get repossessed during this episode. Folks, thank you for the countless hours of entertainment and discussion. I look forward to many more. From Aaron, your number one listener, originally from Florida, but stuck in Nebraska for the mm. past five years. I do love our listeners, and I love them being creative and weaving references into the show. Stuff that I would have completely forgotten about. Us talking about Rabbit Hole and in in going to see it. 
when we first started and you were doing the editing, mm -hmm. oddly, yeah, I was better at remembering things we would say. But now that I listen to it while I'm editing it and then a million times listening to it probably because I'm fixing all of the various fuck-ups. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember anything now. Now, granted, we've recorded hundreds more episodes, yeah. so that's a big part of it. I used to have a really good memory for the things that we said on the show and call back to things, and uh, annoyingly so, I would say. But at some point, this whole thing just became No, wait. You and annoying references? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't believe That it. keeps popping up in the emails, too. I insist that you don't read about it. <laughs> but yeah, at some point, this whole thing just became an absolute blur to me, and I have no idea what the hell we say ever now. <laughs> Roman Polanski read the screenplay by Enrique Urbizu, an adaptation of the Spanish novel El Club Dumas by Arturo Perez Reverte. Impressed with the script, Polanski read the novel, liking it because he saw so many elements that seemed good for a movie. He said it was suspenseful, funny, and there were a great number of secondary characters that are tremendously cinematic. Perez Reverte's novel El Club Dumas features intertwined plots, so Polanski wrote his own adaptation with his usual partner, John Brownjohn. They deleted the novel's literary references and a subplot about Dean Corso's investigation of an original manuscript of a chapter of The Three Musketeers and concentrated upon Corso's pursuing the authentic copy of The Nine Gates. Polanski approached the subject skeptically, saying, I don't believe in the occult, I don't believe, period. Yet he enjoyed the genre. Yeah. There are a great number of cliches of this type in The Ninth Gate, he said, which I tried to turn around a bit. You can make them appear serious on the surface, but you cannot help but laugh at them. The appeal of the film was that it featured, quote, a mystery in which a book is the leading character, unquote, and its engravings are also essential clues. Let's just get it out of the way now so there's no confusion later for the people who haven't seen the film. When we say engravings... They're just drawings in a book. Right. Because when someone says engravings, I think something carved or yeah, yeah. engraved, meaning <laughs> yeah. what literally we all know etched it to mean. Yes. into something, not just a drawing, but right. it's just illustrations in a book. Yeah. With the key piece being the signature of the author. Well, yeah. Or the illustrator, I should say. The film itself opens with an old man's suicide. We're seeing some long artistic tracking shots i like the way that they do it too where the camera finally slowly turns around and then you see the noose and you're like oh okay i get what's happening here yeah this scene sort of feels unlike anything that follows yeah definitely because after this guy hangs himself mm -hmm. it goes into the opening credits and then right after that opening credits sequence you're thrust into the big city Right into downtown New York, basically. And that feels like a million miles away from totally. what that opening is. That felt English countryside somewhere in an estate. A guy in a very old but rich looking area. Yes. <laughs> Something. Robes. <laughs> in the first 20 or so minutes, we're introduced to Dean Corso, played by the aforementioned Johnny Depp a New York City rare book dealer. What a gig. I occasionally come across 
the TikTok videos or whatever they're called on Instagram of a guy who sort of is this in real life. Doesn't really look anything like Johnny Depp. And <laughs> I don't sure. really think his life is anything like the character in this film. And he's not really comparable to Indiana Jones, which yeah. Corso kind of is. Well, that's the thing. Corso gets to be the private investigator version of this job. For sure, yeah. Corso is a PI type, much in the Philip Marlowe mold, if you will. And that's why this is considered a neo-noir, even though I don't know if everybody would take that away upon first viewing. I don't know what really would make it a neo-noir versus a regular noir, other than it's more modern. Yeah. But it still feels like Chinatown to me. Yeah. In fact, in many ways, this feels like a combination of Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown. Forget it, Dean. It's the devil. It's hell. Yeah. <laughs> Perez Reverte's working title, or at least one of them, was the book detective, and Corso is referred to that moniker by one of the characters in the film. So, oh yeah, it is sort of what they were going for. Bookman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it all comes back to Seinfeld. Totally. It always does. Yep. In reading El Club Dumas. Polanski did picture Depp as Dean Corso, who joined the production as early as 97 when he met Polanski at the Cannes Film Festival while promoting The Brave, although there were times where he did not think Depp necessarily was right because the character in the novel was 40 years old. Depp at the time was only 34. Polanski considered an older actor, but Depp persisted. He wanted to work with Polanski, and in fact, he set aside his usual... $10 $10 million yeah. fee, which is what he was getting at the time, in, to make this happen. Now, I would think of this movie as a Depp role, even though it feels weird once he's in it, and his performance is sort of flat, I guess is what Polanski said about it. Well, yeah, it. the film press reported around the time of the North American release, creative friction between Depp and Polanski. Depp said, it's the director's job to push to provoke things out of an actor. Oh, Polanski said of Depp, he decided to play it rather flat, which wasn't how I envisioned it, and I didn't tell him it wasn't how I saw it. I would agree that it is sort of a muted performance. I think I get what Depp was going for. I'm not 100% sure he pulls it off. But I'm assuming that when Polanski compromises to cast the younger actor that he initially was re resistant to, that he was expecting more of that flamboyant, Johnny Depp that you do see in yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. A very I mean it's interesting in your face on edge performance and he's much more subdued. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear Depp's commentary sort of put it on the director. It's not uncommon when you hear performances discussed that yes, directors are pulling these performances out, but I do think that for a Polanski, I'm sure you're thinking like Johnny Depp is a movie star. He's gonna show up with this whole plan of how he's going to be this character and it's going to jump out of the screen and, and then, i'm sure he did it yeah. just wasn't what polanski was thinking mm -hmm. the don quixote that corso buys at the beginning of the film is the very famous joaquin ibera edition published in 1780 which is generally considered as the best and most beautiful one he also mentions the hyper Heipner, <laughs> he also mentions another book that I'm not going to try to pronounce, oh. Venice 1499, printed by Francesco Colana, dubbed the most beautiful book ever printed. 
Now these illustrations can be viewed on the internet. This is a little bit of a window into that character from the book, which is mostly erased on screen. He is yeah. ripping these people off. And this is probably the most unlikable he comes off in the entire movie. Yeah, we're going to get more into that later, but there's some elements of his character that are taken out. And I'm not sure why, because it may have made him seem more interesting and maybe given Depp a little bit more to do with the character. Because he has this little sleazy moment. He's acting as if these books that he wants aren't that valuable, so he's getting a great price, while the true owner is wheelchair-bound and unable to speak and is listening to this outrage. Yeah, we're able to gauge his reaction still. Yes, while his greedy pig children are cashing in. And so this is something we had trouble communicating the first time we recorded, but I'm going to try it again. Yeah. The movie, by setting this up where they've added in a layer of these greedy children Mm -hmm. who don't really care what the books are worth other than money in their pocket. That's all. They did not collect these things and they hold no personal value to them by having that layer in between corso and the old man who is being ripped off it softens the blow that's even. true yeah. so the like, one instance where he seems slimy they even yeah, it's like he's of, not the worst person in the room yes exactly right. and i think that that's strange they really went above and beyond in trying to make him seem more likable than evidently he is in the original novel and i don't know why it seems like a strange choice. I guess because they want you to root for this guy up until the end. Yeah. I guess maybe on screen when you're seeing a movie, if there's nobody likable and nobody worth rooting for, it can be less compelling to mm-hmm. stay with it. And this movie does sort of suck you in where you want to find out what the resolution will be, even though there isn't some great mystery to it. At a certain point, I think you know what's happening, right? Right. But you still kind of want to see how it plays out. (laughs) For sure. You're hooked. The bag that Corso carries throughout the film is a small bag carried by French soldiers around the year 1935. It was used to carry ammunition and other small items. It's called a Musset MLE 35. And I just wanted to point that out because he does carry it the entire film. It's kind of an appendage. Yeah, I would say it's a real character-defining... I know that you're considering branching out, maybe expanding your style a little bit, incorporating a Listen, bag. I'd love to be one of these dudes. I don't think I can be. I think you can. All right. You've got kind of a, a metro vibe. Sort of a loser professor look. <laughs> My wife has a new boyfriend look. <laughs> Well, because Roman Polanski was not really able to return to the States, and is still not, mm-hmm. Paris stands in for New York City during the opening of the film. Corso is hired by a wealthy collector named Boris Balkin, played by Frank Langella, who really eats this role up. Oh, yeah. Great <laughs> at just being evil. Perfect casting. Yes. <laughs> exactly who should be this guy. Balkan has acquired a copy of The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, a book by 17th century author Aristide Torsha, said to be able to summon the devil. Torsha is alleged to have written the book in collaboration with the devil, and only three copies survived when he and his works were burned for heresy. Balkan believes only one of the three is authentic, and wants Corso to inspect the other two 
to determine which one. And conveniently, the other two will be located in Europe. So this will end up being a cross-country jaunt, which I have to say ends up being really cool and fun to look at and unique in Hollywood because it's all shot in Europe. Yep. It has a very U- European vibe, even the parts that are supposed to be in New York. It does, never feels like New York no, at no. all. There's a part where he gets out at a payphone, and you can see signs in the background. It's so clearly in France. Right. But anyway, that um, makes it feel similar to Eyes Wide Shut, which also has that vibe of not actually quite being New York. By the way, I distinctly remember seeing the trailers and TV spots for Eyes Wide Shut, so... You know, I, I remember a movie. Everyone knew about Eyes Wide yeah. Shut. It was a huge story, though. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of road time in this movie. Oh, yeah. There are some areas where the movie could be a little tighter, where they're just driving and <laughs> a- arriving and exiting. Spending and... time just stuck behind a tractor trailer. This guy, Balkan, is clearly obsessed in a weird way with Satan. Probably not someone you'd want to hang with yeah probably a difficult hang yeah do you want to see my book collection i was very very close to saying we knew a girl who was obsessed with satan and then i realized we didn't actually know her (laughs) (laughs) and i'll just leave it at that wow (laughs) but it was a weird there was a revelation (laughs) it was a weird revelation when we discovered that was the thing going on (laughs) yeah there was also some clown issues going on a lot of weird stars. <laughs> Hopefully she never listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because that is a very specific sounding person. <laughs> uh, I check all three of those boxes. <laughs> but yes, he's got this insane library. Clearly he's up to no good. Who is this obsessed with the devil? <laughs> The keypad combinations for Boris's penthouse office and his private library are both 666. Yeah. I feel like that's a little on the nose. Really? Way he's to make people guess. Down this, there at the bottom of this fucking building, he's giving a lecture on Satan. This book collection will be ripped off immediately. <laughs> yeah, any of those jackasses sitting down there, yeah. the first thing they're going to guess. <laughs> By the way, The Nine Gates is not a real book, and it was created for the purposes of the original novel. That's a shame. And we learn from context clues in this conversation between Balkan and Corso that the person we saw commit suicide at the opening of the film was a man named Telfer. That is who Balkan acquired his copy of The Nine Gates from. Seems pretty ominous. I think so. To sell your Satan book and then immediately kill yourself. (laughs) Something weird's going on. Yeah, I'd say. The first person Corso goes to chat with is in New York as well. He goes to see the widow, Liana Telfer. Pretty obvious. She's played by Lena Olin. You're a book detective. Kind of. Do you recall when and where your husband acquired this book? In Spain. We were vacationing at Toledo. Andrew got very excited. He paid a great deal of money for it. He was a fanatical collector. So I gather. I'll show you.
impressive. Andrew used to spend many hours in here. Too many. Did he ever try it out? I don't understand. The book. Did he ever use it to perform some kind of ritual intended to produce a supernatural effect? Are you serious? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Andrew was a trifle eccentric, Mr. Corso, but he wasn't insane. It's true, we'd been acting. Strangely, those last few days, he shut himself up in here. He seldom emerged except for meals. That morning, I was awoken by the screams of the maid. He'd hanged himself. Whatever he was up to, I certainly can't see him chanting mumbo-jumbo or trying to raise the dead. The devil, Mrs. Telfer. This book is designed to raise the devil. I would say a woman of mystique. <laughs> a woman of mystique. <laughs> She's the uh, femme fatale. The first thing I thought about Liana was that she doesn't seem to be particularly broken up about her husband. No. Although I noticed the age disparity. Her yeah, husband seemed is, a lot older. That's always the case. Not that she's super young. No, she's no. not but there's some a new ingenue. Here. But yeah, there was a gap. And not only does she not seem sad, she's left remnants of the act. The ceiling fan is still damaged from where he hung himself. They didn't even <laughs> fix it. Just shut the door? Yeah, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> This first interaction is brief. There is a little bit of a sexual charge. I think one thing that I would say that this movie does not have a lot of is subtlety, and you can pretty much tell that Liana is suspicious from the get-go. I'd say so. She's a little too seductive, a little too attractive, a little too ominous. Something's not right here. When Corso is first seen researching the Nine Gates in the library, the cover page of the book shows the name of the author with the Latin phrase cum superiorum privilegio venique, with permission and license of one's superiors, written underneath the name. In the novel, it is explained that this formula was used to prove the book in question was not infringing the teachings of the church. However, the book was indeed forbidden hinting that the author was acknowledging someone else, and not the church, as his superiors. All of the engravings or illustrations that we do see that appear in the film The Nine Gates were actually commissioned for the novel and not for the movie. Oh, wow. By the author himself. The only exception is the one showing the girl riding a dragon, which is revealed at the end of the film because they had to make it similar to the actress's face. That's right. The full nine engraving titles in Torch's Nine Gates are, in order, and I'm only going to read the English, not the Latin. Please. Silence is golden. They open that which is closed. The lost word keeps the secret. Fate is not the same for all. This one is great. Mm. In vain. And it's just one word in Latin. Frustra. Describes me working on this podcast sometimes, especially when I find out that we recorded for two hours and it's not going to be usable. Yeah, I had a more extreme word. <laughs> I am enriched by death. <laughs> that's the next <laughs> one. That's what I said. <laughs> the disciple surpasses the master. Virtue lies defeated. Now I know that from darkness comes light. 
And that's what I say when we have to re-record. <laughs> that's true, yeah. <laughs> you are the optimist of the group. During his initial travels around the city, Corso notices a mysterious woman whom he recognizes from back in Balkan's lecture. Emmanuel Sr. plays this unnamed woman known as the girl. I'm not really sure if that's how you say her last name. She is married to Roman Polanski now, and she's been in a few of his other films. Bitter Moon comes to mind. This mysterious woman is known as the girl in the credits, and that's just what the character is, so that's who we're talking about. She seems to be following Corso, and then, as is often the case in these noir films, our detective here, he returns home to find his apartment broken into and all thrown about. Clearly, somebody's looking for something, getting an Eddie in the Cruisers vibe. Yeah, it's sort of like your apartment. Yeah. <laughs> it's just movies all over the place. This movie would be a great double feature with Angel Heart, actually, uh, right. which is the one other neo-noir that gets into the satanic stuff, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> a lot of crossover. That one's a little more sexually charged. Which is one of my complaints for this film. I wish we would have gotten a little bit more into that orgy they material. They with it, yeah, but yeah. there's not enough. I need a lot of orgy <laughs> material to be satisfied. Before Corso heads off to Europe, Liana arrives at his place unexpectedly intent on seduction. They do address the elephant in the room that she is behaving like the femme fatale in a noir. They are kind of flirting with that scream meta quality where they're calling out the tropes of the genre True. in which they're working. And he says, this is where you would have an automatic in your garter belt or something. And she literally lifts her dress to show her underwear and says, see, no automatic. And I can't believe, I cannot believe. She teed it up. That he doesn't say, looks pretty automatic to me. <laughs> How do you not have him say that? I know that it maybe is a little too jokey, but it's just right there. (laughs) She's showing him her underwear. She's clearly there to fuck. She says, see, no automatic. Mm -hmm. Come on, people. Yeah, no, if they had just put that line in and ended the movie right here, it's up 40% points on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Granted, it's only 25 minutes long, but (laughs) whatever. The truth of it is that she's hoping Corso will sell her back her late husband's book, even though she knows it actually belongs to Balkan and not Corso. She's hoping to use sex to get what she wants. Matt, can you believe it? I can't. Yeah, no, I was floored. Who would do such a thing? After they have sex and he refuses to sell, she attacks him and knocks him unconscious. The next day, Corso goes to a bookseller he had entrusted the book to, and finds him hanged in his store, much like an engraving, straight from the Nine Gates. I wouldn't say uh, just a a bookseller. I mean, this seems like one of his best buds. Yeah, this guy's really only in two scenes, but he seems like a close confidant. They hint at a history between the two. Although, when Corso finds him like this, he doesn't really react, and then there's that indelicate book retrieval where he's literally stepping around the guy's dead body (laughs) to get the book that's the thing about this character and this performance he doesn't really react to a lot he's sort of nonchalant about most things and when he is reacting it seems more about him just getting out of whatever situation that he's in the thing that bothers me a little bit is the scene with liana coming to seduce him 
and immediately launching into this appeal for the book. And then when she doesn't get it, reacting violently. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that pretty much just lay out what's going on the entire time? Not a Having lot of mystery here. Yeah. Do you have to even have this? No. What you could have done is have Liana seduce him right upon meeting, but seem innocent other than that. And that's your big clue is, oh, she's fucking this guy right after her husband commits suicide. This that's bad enough. Detective. And that's it. Yeah. And then they swing back around later or something and add a little mystery here. They've pretty much announced her as the villain of the piece 25 minutes into a two-hour-plus movie. Well, to some degree, everyone that he meets is a villain. To some degree, yeah, but I'm talking about more of the direct threat to him. Yeah, right. There's some exterior New York City cab footage that they use that also really reminds me of Eyes Wide Shut. A lot of very visual, similar things here a few times, especially at the end of the movie. Or towards the end of the movie where he's on that estate. That's yeah. also very similar. I was just thinking about everyone being villains. But, well, I guess when you're dabbling in the world of devil worship. It's that's, not what that... I, that's literally what I thought you meant. No, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. But you're like, why is everyone evil in this movie? And it's like, oh, yeah, they're all into the devil. So now that Corso has encountered death firsthand, he tries to quit. He speaks with Balkan over the phone, but Balkan doubles down, offers even more by telling Corso that he's going to add a zero to his already generous payout. Well, that is significant. And Corso is a bit of a whore, and it is all about the money, so that is enough. Next, Corso travels to Toledo, Spain, to speak to the Seniza Brothers book restorers who owned Balkan's copy before the Telfers. The two show him that, of the book's nine engravings, only six are signed A.T. for Aristide Torsha. The other three, however, are signed L.C.F., which Corso correctly guesses stands for Lucifer. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, really, quite the co-author. You didn't realize that Lucifer was this much of a Renaissance man. Well, immediately, I think any astute viewer understands what they're saying. Yeah. Lucifer is in the mix. He possibly worked on this book. That is what you would have to assume in a movie about Mm -hmm. the occult. So part of what keeps you hooked is the idea of what you're going to potentially see at the end of the movie. What is going to be the big reveal? For sure. I guess you can debate whether or not there's enough. Is any one of these idiots going to actually pull off? Yes, exactly. (laughs) What they're trying to do. The two booksellers Corso encounters in Toledo are actually the same actor, Jose Lopez Rodero. And I think it's pretty clear. I think you can really easily tell that this is one of the camera tricks where it's the same dude. Polanski used a motion control rig to use the same actor twice. The same man appears again later playing two workmen cleaning out the bookstore Rodero was an assistant director and production manager, not a professional actor. He was hesitant to accept these multiple parts. Although, since we are having to redo this episode, I was able to put on the Ninth Gate earlier today and rewatch some of the film. And I thought that this dude was pretty funny and good. And I get why Polanski wanted to put him in the movie, because he looks like a real guy. Yeah. Old school directors like that don't want to cast these airbrushed, photoshopped, Disney Channel, perfect looking people. They want real people to fill in the character roles. Yes, you have to cast Johnny Depp to sell tickets, but you don't need 
the same six character actors that you've seen a million times yeah. in every part. Real people who are naturally sort of quirky and have like distinctive traits. Yes. I definitely think that Polanski was trying to inject a little bit of offbeat humor into the film. I don't know that I would ever really say that anything in the movie approaches a laugh out loud moment for no, me. No, but there's stuff that feels silly. Yeah. And yeah. kind of unexpected, I right. guess. When Pedro Siniza asked Corso to guess what the initial LCF stands for, just before Corso says Lucifer, there's the sound of a fly flying, even though f- no fly can be seen. One of Lucifer's other names is Beelzebub, which in Hebrew means Lord of the Flies. Ooh. I actually think there's some dissonant fly buzzing from the moment he's walking into that store, even way before that question. That seems familiar. Buenos tardes. Buenos tardes. You speak English? Yes, I do. I would like to get your opinion on this. The Nine Gates, superb edition. Very rare. The perfect copy. Yes. You used to own it, right? We used to, yes. We sold it when the opportunity presented itself. It was too good to... Too good to miss. An excellent sale. An excellent buy. Impeccable condition. Impeccable. Are you the present owner? No, a client of mine. I would never have believed she would part with it. Never. She? Mrs. Telfer. Mm-hmm. I understood that it was Mr. Telfer with it bought. Well, he paid for it. It was Mrs. Telfer who made him buy it. He didn't seem particularly... Interested. An exceptional specimen. Do you think it could be a forgery? A forgery? Hear that, Pablo? Oh, I took you for a professional. You speak too lightly of forgeries. Far too lightly. Forging a book is very expensive. Paper of the period, right inks, too expensive to be profitable. Still, it can be done. Of course. Uh, requires a great skill, but yes, it can be done. Do you think that could be the case here? What makes you ask? My client wishes to satisfy himself on the book's authenticity. His name is Balkan, Boris Balkan of New York. All books have a destiny of their own. Even a life of their own. Mr. Balkan is a celebrated collector. He's no fool. He must know this book is authentic. We know it. So must he. We've had this book for years. Many years. Ample opportunity to study thoroughly. Painting, the binding, a magnificent example of 17th century Venetian craftsmanship. Finest rock paper, resistant to the passage of time. None of your modern wood pulp. Watermarks, ink, typefaces. If this is a forgery or a copy with missing pages restored, is the work of a master. A master? Yes. Have you studied the engravings? They seem to have some underlying significance. But of course. Here, for example. This one could be interpreted as a warning. Venture too far, it seems to say, and danger will descend on you from above. This type of books often contain little puzzles. Especially in the case of such an illustrious collaborator. Collaborator? Mm-hmm. You couldn't not proceed very far in your research, senor. Here, look close. And you see? 
Only six of the nine engravings were signed by Aristide Torquia. Yes. And the other three? But this is one of them. L.C.F. Who's L.C.F.? Think. Lucifer? Hmm. Very perceptive of you, senor. Torquia was burnt alive because he wrote this book in collaboration with someone else. Come on, you can't honestly believe Man that who the... wrote this book, it's saw an alliance with the devil and went to the stake for it. Even hell has its heroes, senor. <laughs> On the way to Lisbon, Corso encounters the girl. Ah, uh, yes. Once again, this time on his train. Yeah, this is crossed over into straight-up stalker now because she was in the class. We notice her distinct footwear. In reality, it would be much stranger than it feels in the movie because the beginning of the movie does not actually feel like New York, right. so it feels like Corso is always in Europe. Totally. But in reality, they're saying that this girl has now followed him from New York to a train to Lisbon, <laughs> Portugal. So obviously she's following. What a coincidence running into you here. Well, I'm, I guess that's I what know. I'm saying. In the movie, it kind of feels like it still could be. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem as if he's gone anywhere. We haven't seen him get on a plane. It doesn't feel like he's traveled. Mm-hmm. But he has. Now, he's actually more able to rationalize it in a way that I wouldn't have got to immediately, which is just that she's working for Balkan and has been trailing if this was your line of work that's exactly what you would come to immediately though what other what other you're because you're approaching it from thinking like a movie right right if this was actually happening to you who would be this person be it's right it has to be connected to what you're working on corso stops and speaks with her assuming she works for balkan she reveals almost nothing though and remains a mystery it's almost like he gives up too easily you would think you would press more on this she seems to have that effect on him where he's not really able to get a straight answer, but he doesn't ever push super hard on it's it. It's just like, okay, whatever. But it's a mystery person in a religious type of film. Mm-hmm. There's only so many options. You're either playing for one side or the other, and you're probably either an angel or a demon or something. It's not super complicated, <laughs> especially once she starts breaking out the supernatural moves. Yeah, yeah. In Portugal Corso meets with Victor Fargus, who owns a copy of the Nine Gates. Corso finds that three different engravings in Fargus's copy are signed LCF. Now Fargus not really evil, just a, a, a book dude. fan. Yeah, and the engravings signed this way have subtle differences from those signed AT in Balkan's copy. So what I'm saying is the ones that have the LCF are different. It's mm-hmm. a different set of three. While leaving Fargus's estate, Corso is nearly run over by a menacing man we might remember as having been lingering around Liana Telfer, but this mystery attacker is run off by someone else who arrives just in time on a motorcycle, who then also speeds off themselves. A very narrow road kind of makes me a little claustrophobic. Now, you were saying you did not initially recognize this man as being associated with Leona Telfer. You didn't remember his face. No, I didn't. He was just sort of lounging around like the nihilist at the (laughs) Lebowski's house in the Big Lebowski. That must be exhausting. Except at least in this case, Telfer himself was already dead Mm -hmm. before he moved in. 
but you did assume it was the girl on the motorcycle, right? Of course. There's really not yeah, a lot of right. options. Not a lot of mystery there. It's very clearly a young yeah. woman, very similar looking. And as you have pointed out, they make it a, a point to fixate on her footwear. And right. I think she's wearing Reeboks, distinctive looking shoes and jeans. Also a very 90s look. Although she could have walked right out of Urban Outfitters today. Well, yeah. Well, that is kind of back. Like, yes. bagginess is back in a little bit, too. Shortly thereafter, though, in the lobby of his hotel, Corso once again encounters the girl, pretty much revealing that it would have had to have been her, because now she's just at his hotel. He is in the process of confirming whether or not it was her who arrived on the motorcycle at the right moment, but then he is called away for a phone call. It's Balkan, and when Corso relays to him his findings regarding the Fargus copy of the book, Balkan orders him to acquire that copy and oh, hangs yeah. up, even though we already know directly from Fargus that Fargus wouldn't sell for any price. Right. Balkan is salivating at this point. I think what they're going for eventually is trying to make us believe that it could either be one of two options as mm-hmm. to who is leaving the Trail of Dead. But if you think about it for more than a couple seconds, you realize that it really doesn't make sense Not that a lot it would of be Balkan. No. Because why would he kill that guy back in New York? Right. I guess, though, that the deaths that pile up in Europe do seem to benefit Balkan because he wants these copies and then he's just able to get them. That is true. And the movie never actually does confirm, I guess. Does it? For sure. Not for sure. In the morning, Corso is awakened by the girl who reveals that she not only is aware of Fargus, but also that, yes, she was the woman on the motorcycle because she wants to take him to this man, Fargus, again mm-hmm. on the motorcycle. As always, Corso just completely nonchalant to everything that's happening around him. Yeah, even his response to this is basically, okay, let's go. <laughs> sure. I don't really know you, but okay. I'm up for that. I'm going to assume you know how to ride this motorcycle. Yeah, what are you doing in my hotel room? <laughs> There's some weird footage of them riding on the motorcycle together. It looks strange and probably could be cut. Doesn't really add a ton. I enjoy their road time together. <laughs> well, later in the car, they can at least talk. Yeah, this right. is just a weird looking <laughs> footage that's yeah. added in there. I don't know why it's necessary. When the girl takes Corso to see Fargus, he discovers that Fargus has been drowned. Corso retrieves Fargus's burnt copy of the Nine Gates from the fireplace and finds the three LCF engravings already torn out. Now, Corso is suspicious of this woman, because why wouldn't he be? Who is she and why does she know what she knows? Is she working for someone? If so, who? But because he can't really get rid of her, maybe he's just attracted to her, I I guess? I, I don't know. He doesn't spend much time questioning her, even though things are clearly not normal. Nevertheless, together, they go to Paris to track down the third copy of The Nine Gates. On the flight to France, he refers to her as his guardian angel. She responds with, if you say so. (laughs) Noncommittal. Although it is left open to interpretation in the movie on who the girl truly is, in the book, she does literally tell Corso that she is a fallen angel who has been walking the earth for a millennium, waiting for him. The ending then is different, so I'm not actually spoiling the movie's ending yet by saying Mm. both of them together vow to conjure the devil at the end. 
Whereas in the film, yeah, it doesn't really. The play girl's out like not that. really involved yeah. directly in the last moments. I think in the book, she's also assumed to possibly be a representation of the whore of Babylon, which is something straight from the Bible. Hmm, that's a very descriptive name. <laughs> Once they touch down in Paris, the girl seems to vanish in the crowd. She's always doing that. Yeah, that's a weird part of the movie, too, is figuring out what exactly is going on, where is she at certain moments, because Corso doesn't seem to react when she disappears, so you're not sure if he's aware of what she's doing or not. It doesn't seem as if he is, but it's never like there's a scene where she shows back up and he says, where were you? Why did you leave? No, they don't have conversations like that. No, no. She just weaves in and out. And he just goes with it. To be fair, I've had some women in my life, I guess, that are kind of like that. Yeah, not all that long ago. (laughs) Yeah, maybe some right now. (laughs) Gruber, the hotel concierge in Paris, is wearing the crossed keys insignia of the real-life Society of the Golden Keys, which is what inspired the fictional Society of the Crossed Keys in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Unbelievable. I don't actually think there's any connection between the movies. No, I, I think they're just pointing out that that's what that thing is that the guy's wearing. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is one of the things that, and there's a few moments in the movie where it feels like you've missed something. Yes. Like, why is this guy working for Corso? There's a whole subplot in the novel regarding the French hotel receptionist and his past interactions with Corso, described as an extremely punctilious detailed man who wears his uniform with military discipline it is heavily implied that he is a former nazi and possibly a war criminal who owes corso some sort of favor this explains his attitude towards him in the film and why he does not question his extremely suspicious and specific requests well yeah this guy takes his job pretty seriously if he's going to like find people for corso get information for him And that ties in with what I wanted to get to about Corso's character in the source novel. What kind of guy is he supposed to be exactly? He's known as Lucas Corso in the novel, not Dean. And he is far more likable in the film. In the book, Corso's activities are downright illegal, often using the Seniza brothers to erase or forge library seals and other marks, and even changing illustrated pages in the film, when he meets the Sinisa brothers, that is the first time he's oh, meeting yeah, them. Oh, yeah, right. They are not people who he has interacted with before. I see in the book there's a history there. They're long-time co-conspirators on some dirty deeds. Totally. <laughs> Apart from the first scene, the film's version of Corso is not particularly dishonest, yet everyone treats him as such. This leads to a dropped plot in the film in which it is revealed that the owner of the third copy of The Nine Gates, the Baroness Kessler, is actually a former Nazi criminal. This book was rife with former Nazis, I guess. And Corso blackmails her with pictures of her with high-ranking Nazi officials to force his way into Mm. her collection when he is initially not allowed. That would have been really... Yeah. Very overcomplicated in the movie, unless they made it all one thing where... Corso anticipated that, and he already had the pictures, yeah. and it was as if he had a key. They decided to go against the a lot of the Nazi material for the theatrical adaptation. Perhaps Polanski, who obviously experienced the Holocaust firsthand, thought mm-hmm. that tying that in with this supernatural stuff was just inappropriate and 
didn't think it was probably didn't really fit the tone. Yeah. Without this scene, the movie ends up having the Baroness giving access to her library out of personal greed, I guess, because she's tempted by information that Corso provides when she's initially reluctant because she actually has well, they all want a negative do, history know. with Balkan. And they all want to do this conjuring of the devil. So when it seems like more information is being discovered, her interest is peaked. As we just said, the third copy is owned by Baroness Kessler. You know, I know your catalog almost by heart. Strange we haven't met before. Your name is a byword among dealers and collectors. <laughs> but I imagine you know your own reputation better than I do. <laughs> yes, well, it does keep the wolf from the door, so to speak. I'm sorry, Baroness, were you in the middle of something? My latest work, The Devil, History and Myth, a kind of biography. It will be published early next year. Mm -hmm. Why the devil? I saw him one day. I was 15 years old, and I saw him as plain as I see you now. It was love at first sight. You know, 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake for saying something like 300 that. 300 years ago, I wouldn't have said it. <laughs> <laughs> Nor would I have made a million by writing about it. Yeah. What is it you wish to discuss, Mr. Corso? Uh, there's a book in your collection I'd like to examine, if possible. It's the book of the Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows. The Nine Gates. An interesting work. Everyone's been asking me about it lately. Is that so? Follow me. You truly believe in the devil, Baroness? Enough to devote my life and my library to him. Not to mention many years of work. Don't you? Almost. This book demands a certain amount of faith. Yes, well, I'm afraid my faith is in short supply these days. I know this work extremely well. I've studied it for years. Do you have any doubts about its authenticity? None whatsoever. You're sure? My knowledge of this book is profound. I wrote a biography of its author. Yes, I've read it. Aristide Torquia, The Devil's Apprentice. Excellent work. A courageous man. He died for the sake of this very book in 1667. While studying the black arts in Prague, he acquired a copy of the Dread Dello Melanicon. This is Torquia's adaptation of that work, which was written by Lucifer himself. After they burned him at the stake, a secret society was founded to perpetuate its memory and preserve its secrets. The Order of the Silver Serpent. She's an interesting old gal. She's oh, yeah. clearly had some history with secret societies. I enjoyed all of her reminiscing about her orgy days. When she launched into this stuff, it did bring me back a little bit to Rosemary's Baby because I was thinking all them witches. Oh, yeah. Because part of the fun is stripping away the stereotypes. Of course. The Wicked Witch of the West, the green skin, the pointy hat. And the witches are actually these normal-looking old people. And so the Baroness is much like a lot of the members of the satanic cult that is revealed at the end of Rosemary's Baby. Just, Just these a bunch of old people sitting around a piano. <laughs> Sometimes nude. Yeah. She is the second character, though, when discussing the Telfer copy of the book, the book that is now in possession of Balkan, the one Corso's lugging around Europe. She is the second character to point out that it was not Andrew Telfer, the man we saw commit suicide, who wanted this book, but Liana, who yeah. 
has revealed herself to be someone who desires to have this book, but it has now been confirmed by several characters that, no, she was the one into this shit, and her husband was not and perhaps at all. The, the least shocking reveal of the film. That lying bitch. <laughs> Corso <laughs> says, I just feel so used, you yeah. know? <laughs> I thought she wanted me for me, but I guess she just wanted the book. It is rough. Is that all I am to you, Liana? Just a hard cock and an old book? <laughs> The Baroness also tells us that Fargus, who was in possession of a copy and is now no longer among the living, he was not a true believer anyway and never participated in the ceremonies. This is actually crucial to point out because Fargus has already said that the copies had not been reunited for centuries because it is essential that we know that. Oh, of course. Because... Once you figure out what the trick is, the first thing you would think is, why wouldn't anyone else have figured this out? Well, it's because these books hadn't been together in so long. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. these people weren't all on the same page about no, what, no. what they were doing. They were continents apart. However, once the Baroness learns that Corso is in Balkan's employ, she refuses him access to her copy of the book and orders him to leave. Once he does, he's yet again attacked by that distinct-looking gentleman, only to be saved yet again by the girl who exhibits seemingly supernatural powers this time. A little bit of flying or sort of floating, jumping and then gently floating. Levitating. Yeah, kind of a a delicate levitation. Yeah, like a David Blaine move. But then she launches into her fighting, which is sort of like a Power Ranger style. The fight sequences (laughs) are ludicrous. They clearly didn't have any real stunt coordinators no, uh, mapping this unit out director should be pointed out that her little flying thing happens with Corso's back to her so he doesn't see that happen yeah he's not fully aware of all of the supernatural implications yet and i think is supposed to be remaining a skeptic up until the end i would say so i think that's fair ultimately the attacker escapes though The girl gets a little banged up and has some blood on her face. They go back to Corso's hotel room, and then there's this weirdness with the blood. She's smearing the blood onto Corso's face. I would imagine that religious scholars out there, and believe it or not, Matt and myself don't really know all of the details about what's going on with these things. I'm sure this has an explanation. There's some kind of significance as to what she's doing. She's preparing him to be able to do something. Mm -hmm. Because once... It is revealed more or less what her true nature is, I guess, what her goal is. I assume that she's grooming him in He's some being way. Prepped. Yeah. Yeah. The next time Corso speaks with Balkan on the phone, he accuses Balkan of following him to Europe. Corso hides Balkan's copy of the book in his hotel room, discovering that the girl has once again disappeared. He returns to see the Baroness telling her about the LCF engravings, proposing an idea that each existing copy of the book has three of these legit engravings, for lack of a better term, and together they would form an authentic set of nine. This tidbit gets her attention. Intrigued, the Baroness allows Corso to examine her copy of The Nine Gates. So whether you're talking about the Baroness... Balkan, Liana, any of these people, Mm -hmm. it has to be pointed out that what they've all been doing is trying to conjure the devil. They've all attempted it, and it just hasn't worked. It's because they haven't been able to put the pieces together. 
for some reason, Balkan is the first of these geniuses to say, well, we might as well look at all of the copies and see what the deal is. Now, that only really makes sense in a movie because in real life, I think everyone would be like, yeah, of course this didn't work. What are you, <laughs> <Yeah>. an idiot? <laughs> but in a movie, he's the first one to think, hey, well, there's two other copies out there. Maybe you need all three. Maybe there's something different about the other ones. Maybe there's only one real one and those other two aren't doing it right. And that's sort of what's going on, I guess. Yeah, they need to combine the powers here. Flattery will get you nowhere, Mr. Corso. Get on with it. Right. These are for you. What is this? What is it supposed to be? You said that your knowledge of the Nine Gates was extensive, but did you ever compare your copy with the other two? No. Why? Well, you should. These are copies of the engravings in Balkan's book. You'll find that some of them differ from yours. Differ? So you question my book's authenticity, do you? If that's your peace offering, you can take it and go. My nine gates is absolutely genuine. I don't dispute that, Baroness. In my opinion, all three copies are genuine. But the fact remains they display variations. Variations? If that were true, it would be a revelation. What makes you so sure? I've already compared these with the Fargus engravings. And in his book, the keys were in the other hand. Here, the doorway wasn't bricked up. And in this one, the man was hanging by the other leg. Closely, Baroness. The turrets. Three in yours, four in Balkans. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I'm convinced there'll be a third one in here somewhere. Three variations in three copies makes nine. Coincidence or something more. Maybe Torquia hid the secret of the Ninth Gate in three books, not one. I must admit I'm impressed. This puts an entirely different complexion on the matter. You have my permission to investigate further, Mr. Corso. Take as long as you need. While comparing the engravings, Corso is attacked from behind, rendering him yet again unconscious. Multiple blows to the head. CTE developing yeah, totally. throughout the film. He awakens to find the Baroness strangled to death and her library in flames. He flees the scene in a panic with the Baroness's secretary witnessing his abrupt departure. So as Corso's moving through Europe, he's leaving a trail of dead behind him and yet, the movie never really makes it feel like the he's stakes. afraid of being a suspect. And this is the only time that it actually was clear to me. The first couple of times, I wasn't even thinking about it. No, I know. Same here. 
And it doesn't feel like the stakes are rising, even though they should be. No, and except for a line towards the end yeah. where they throw away, like, oh, now you won't be a suspect. <laughs> That's the only time they even address it. Right. It's just something they they didn't really fixate on for some reason. Even though this scene in particular, multiple witnesses could put him at the scene. <laughs> yeah, and they know that he is motive because he was summarily dismissed previously. He was embarrassed. When Corso returns to his hotel, he discovers the Balkan copy is now missing, and all signs are that it was snatched by Liana Telfer. Well, who else? Everyone else is dead. Right after Corso breaks the difficult news to Balkan over the phone, bad news that could ultimately get Corso killed, the girl shows up yet again. This was an interesting little segment here. The point of it is that they're going to try to track down Liana. That's who he asked the receptionist to find. When he's reporting the theft at the hotel, that's when the guy's telling him about tracking down Liana and her gentleman caller. Of course. So that's where they rush out. Mm -hmm. The girl, while Corso tries to hail a cab, she steals a Dodge Viper, which was cool to see. Totally. Straight out of a calendar from a book fair. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's the only place they existed. Meanwhile, the amount of cabs interested in picking Corso up, zero. They were more interested in killing him, running him over. It takes a long time, but eventually the girl and Corso track Liana and her boy toy to a sprawling manor where a satanic cult are conducting a ritual using Balkan's book. It has to be commented on. Unbelievable how much time it takes them to get to this mansion. Yeah, the pursuit of Liana, I think, could have been cut out or trimmed down significantly. Unclear as to why this sequence needs to occur. The estate is very eyes wide shut adjacent. For sure. I appreciated a little bit of the extra nudity here from Lena Olin, where she's stripping down to get into her ritual robes. People really dedicated to the cause here. And it is reminiscent of some of the stuff in Eyes Wide Shut, but it also feels very Scooby-Doo-ish. Yeah. Intentionally so, though, because as we're going to learn from Balkan momentarily, (laughs) mumbo-jumbo, and they are supposed to be buffoons. Yeah. But the tone of the movie is sort of hard to pin down, so occasionally the score would lead you to believe that something suspenseful should be happening, and yet you're seeing something that doesn't quite look or feel suspenseful. No, these people seem like goofs. Yeah, so there definitely is a little bit of that levity laced throughout some Mm -hmm. of this occult and darker material, but I could definitely see some audiences not quite grasping what you're supposed to take from that. For sure. Because it's not so obviously funny either. It's still subtle enough where you're not sure if it's supposed to be a little goofy or not. It's a very specific tone. Balkan interrupts the ceremony, takes his copy back, and strangles Liana to death as the rest of the attendants run away in fear, (laughs) proving that these particular Satanists are pussies. Not overly threatening. Look around you, all of you. What do you see? A bunch of buffoons in fancy dress. 
You think the Prince of Darkness would actually deign to manifest himself before the likes of you? He never has and he never will. Never. You read from his book, but you have no conception of its true power. I alone have grasped its secret. I alone have fathomed the Master's grand design. I alone am worthy to enjoy the fruits of that discovery. Absolute power to determine my own destiny. You're insane, Boris. Give it back to me! You, Liana de Saint-Martin, you're even guiltier than the rest of this pathetic rabble. You have at least some idea of what this book can do in your right hands, yet you lend yourself to these farcical proceedings, these orgies of aging flesh conducted in the Master's name. You're a charlatan. Corso abandons the girl, presuming she was working for Balkan. She does have her best bit of dialogue, though. Absolutely. When he accuses her of that, and she says, and here I thought you were. Because he literally was totally, working for Balkan, yes. so I'm not even sure what he's mad at her for, <laughs> yeah. even though she's not working for him. Corso pursues Balkan, but loses him when his car breaks down. During this sequence, there's another quasi-flight for the girl, which I think Corso also misses again. Mm -hmm. Whether intentional or not, the fact that Corso's car stops in a stream while he is wearing an inverted pentagram corresponds to multiple European folklore traditions that evil cannot cross running water, rivers, streams, etc. While Balkan's car makes it across, he is not wearing an inverted pentagram. I think they probably did do that intentionally. I would say. I'm sure that, that a lot of that stuff is baked in there. In I'm addition thinking. to the typical Christian traditions and Christian stuff and stuff that we're probably missing more in line with the Bible and biblical stories. There's also a lot of traditional European and pagan and other religious I'm folklore sure. and European folklore stuff in there too, I would imagine. With nowhere else to turn, Corso begins digging through what he managed to salvage of the Baroness's possessions and he discovers an old postcard with an address that directs him to a remote castle. This is something that we both fixated on as being one of the cooler moments. It looks really great, a nice atmosphere. The totally. visuals and the score all create something very unique. Yeah, even what this actual castle is is like really cool. It's oh, got yeah, a for sure. Look. The Chateau... Puver, or the Ninth Gate, is called the Devil's Tower. It was used by the Cathars to defend themselves during the Albigensian Crusades in the 13th century. The Cathars were agnostic Christians, but Pope Innocent III considered them to be devil worshippers. And that's the cool part of filming in these places in Europe. This is a real place yeah, like that exists. And then you weave it into this story, and it's the perfect location. Absolutely. In a way, it feels like some of those old Hammer horror films or those European, Italian vampire or yeah. horror gothic films filmed yeah. in all those castles uh -huh. randomly in the 70s because it's just out there in the world. There's just this place that exists and looks really fucking cool. Corso finds Balkan in the midst of a ceremony. He is preparing to summon the devil using the nine LCF engravings. Balkan explains to Corso that the Ninth Gate will conjure the devil. What he doesn't tell him is that according to the inscription, a deal will then be struck. The devil will agree to do or supply anything 
for a period of 20 years. After that, he takes possession of the person's soul. Furthermore, that person must then spend eternity in hell, cursing God, which rules out any chance of redemption. Doesn't sound like a great deal to me. 20 years is not enough. No. I'm going to need 20,000 years. Doesn't seem like Balkan... At least. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It seems like Balkan desperately needed Corso to show up here. He, like, really needed to explain this. Yeah, he wanted to show off a yeah. bit. Perhaps he thought maybe he would show up, because I think by Balkan interrupting that ceremony at the right moment, that would make you believe he's just been following corso and watching him the entire time so i think he knows how invested corso has become over time Mm -hmm. i think initially it was purely the money and then at a certain point in the film something switches with corso and he is actually invested now in finding out what's going to happen with these fucking books you know how it is you start down the path you get obsessed with the mystery i'm just imagining what the devil would be like if I conjured him up to my apartment, I'm pretty sure he would get annoyed pretty quickly. <laughs> Let me go back to hell. Really? Masturbating again? <laughs> oh, so we're just not going to leave the apartment today? This is it? We're not getting a shower today? <laughs> we're restarting community for the millionth time? Bob's Burgers for the sixth straight hour? <laughs> I I kind of thought we'd be having a lot more fun. <laughs> not really sure. Oh, you just wanted to tell me your theories on Bob's Burgers. <laughs> oh, more allergy medication? The enigma is soft at last. To travel in silence by a long and circuitous route. To brave the arrows of misfortune and fear neither noose nor fire. To play the greatest of all games and win for going no expense. Is to mock the vicissitudes of fate and gain at last the key. Expecting an apparition? You're not wanted here, Mr. Corso. Leave. I'm the only apparition you'll see tonight. You'll find a check waiting at my New York office, payment in full. You killed for those. They're worth more than money. Infinitely more. But they happen to be mine, not yours. You know something, Corso? In spite of our differences, I have a soft spot for you. I'm touched. We have something in common, you and I. We share the same passion. You've developed the same obsession, haven't you? Unfortunately for you, only one of us is destined to fulfill it. You're out of your depth. Kindly go. I'm not leaving here empty-handed. Don't even think about it. Stand aside. I credited you with more finesse. You heard me stand back. Put that away. It's not just style. At last. I like that. Balkan subdues Corso and forces him to watch as he performs the ritual 
At first, it apparently works and grants Balkan power and immunity to harm, and he emulates himself to demonstrate and attempt to convince a still skeptical Corso. However, the ritual seemingly fails at a certain point, and Balkan begins to scream in pain from the flames engulfing his body. Corso eventually frees himself, retrieves the engravings, and shoots Balkan as an act of mercy to end his torment. Just a terrible job, really. He really went all in. I think I would have maybe only put the gasoline on a finger. Let's see how this goes. Yeah. He just was fully committed. Yeah, dives right in. I'm not even sure why he's doing this, because I thought the whole point was to- I don't know. I heard the stakes of the deal. Chat with LCF. Didn't sound great. I give you my allegiance, master. I pledge myself to you, body and soul. Let me fear neither noose, nor fire, nor poison. Erase me from the book of life. Inscribe me in the black book of death. Admit me to the ninth gate. Let it be so. Let it be so. Now! Feel the power surge through me like an electric current, rendering me capable of any feat of mind or body. I'm invulnerable. I'm invincible. <laughs> I could float on air. I could walk on water. Behold, I plunge my hands in fire. I feel no heat. <laughs> this is great. Give us another one. It's miraculous. <laughs> I feel nothing. Nothing at all. Entering Balkan's car, Corso is confronted by the girl, who then tries to seduce him through supernatural means. Although initially reluctant, Corso doesn't really fight it for that long and gives in, and they both kiss. And just really like a fit of passion on the ground out here. Yeah, they have sex on the ground, and while the girl is on top with the castle burning in the background, she morphs into a different woman, and her appearance sort of changes and changes back. A little bit of a precursor to that effect that you would see in Mandy or a few other movies. Yeah, it's all very phantasm. It's a little bit better than that. (laughs) For me, when the girl reappears in the car unexpectedly and her hand is just there lighting his cigarette, that's actually the biggest jump scare in the movie. And also like one of the coolest moments. (laughs) 
It's it would be cool if I got in my car and there was an attractive woman just waiting for me, and then we had sex on the ground while a castle burned in the background. It would definitely be the most exciting thing that had ever happened. At least this week. Yeah. I, when I leave here and it's like late at night, you know, and I get in my car, I'm like afraid somebody's like in there and gonna is gonna kill the me. The old urban legend. Yeah. yeah. That actually is the scariest thing. Totally. It's probably gonna happen tonight. Yeah, and this is exactly the type of neighborhood. There's always like sirens going off. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is the suburbs. Give me a, a break. Cat stuck in a tree. <laughs> I would say your neighborhood is scarier Absolutely. than mine. Absolutely. Hundred percent. Sometime later, as the two are traveling, the girl explains Balkan's ritual did not work because one of the engravings was forged. When they stop for gas, she seemingly vanishes yet again, much like the movie The Vanishing in a European gas station. It That's right. Very familiar. Wow. But she leaves Corso a note sending him back to the Seniza brothers. At their shop, Corso finds they have mysteriously vanished and the shop is being cleaned out. As workmen remove a large bookcase, a dust-covered paper floats down from the top. This is the authentic engraving, which depicts a woman who resembles the girl riding atop a dragon-like beast in front of the burning castle. He's like, who was spying on us that night? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he just is like, well, so I'm a dragon. Huh? <laughs> it's like confidence is going up. Yeah. Corso appears returning to the castle with the gates opening up full of bright blinding light implying the entrance of the ninth gate has been opened for him mm-hmm. so the three copies of the book in the film survived the burning of Torsha's works because they each had three of the nine engravings by the devil inside them when those engravings were torn out the books could be destroyed which is what happens in the movie This gives us a clue about what's going to happen in the form of that discoloration on the back of Balkan's copy, hinting that maybe it didn't have the three authentic LCF engravings that protected the other two, so it got partially burned because it had one of the forgeries. Ah. Thus, the back of the book closest to that forged engraving was susceptible to to the damage. I know that for Mm. those of you who haven't seen the film, you're probably thinking, well, that's a cheat because you guys didn't mention the burn on the back of the book. But I feel like if you mention stuff like that, which doesn't seem like a big deal, that gives it away. And it's not something you would really even realize until the reveal of the forgery anyway. Fair enough. So there you go. Corso just marching towards this castle. He's like, I got to meet Lucifer and tell him what a great artist he is. Lucifer... Freshly arrived from hell. Yeah. Has some NFTs <laughs> to try to drop. That's right. In the final scene, Corso now has all the authentic engravings as he is walking up to that castle. And if you look very carefully, the devil's silhouette can be seen at the window opening at the top, waiting for him. I guess we have to wait for the sequel, which didn't arrive. <laughs> To find out what <laughs> yeah, Corso what the and, hell actually happened here, and yeah. what they got up to. Yeah, unlike a lot of the other films, including Lair Cake, the last one we did that we do on this podcast, there is no update of any That's remakes true. or reimaginings or sequels the or anything gate. like that. <laughs> the tenth gate. <laughs> I'm sure I've told you in the past about that April Fool's news story about a sequel to seven called eight that i read right 
And it's not that I fell for it. I just read it and thought, man, that sounds really dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is falling for it. But it never occurred to me that it would be fake until years later. Right. Because I I very rightfully thought, why would anyone waste their time writing a fake article? (laughs) I just, the concept of trolling just didn't occur to me, I guess. No idea. Well, thank you so much to Aaron for not only the listener request, but also the email. If you have an email or a listener request or any other questions, comments, concerns, anything else, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and read your email on a future episode of the program. Since we already did email, we're just going to do one quick segment here to wrap us up. Just recommendations. Hardcore Rex. Yep. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Okay, so I'm going to go first, and I'm going to say, check out the Roadhouse trailer. Wow. Big props for remembering to go. talk about See? the Roadhouse trailer. Every once in a Let's while. Let's save that for a second. Okay, though. please. Let's yeah, talk why about don't you go first? the actual legitimate yeah. recommendation. Okay. How about you not mess up the segments? <laughs> <laughs> now, what we just did there would be an example of something that might happen in my recommendation, <laughs> which is a web series that some of you are probably familiar with because it's been around forever. I heard about it first a few years ago. But stayed away because I instinctively knew that it would hit close to home. Almost painfully, this show. And would make the show harder to do. And I am talking about a little program called On Cinema, starring Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington. One of the recurring bits is that Tim is the host, and he insists that Greg is his guest every week. (laughs) And Greg is not a host. But it's always Greg. (laughs) The duo appear using their own names as a pair of hapless movie reviewers to promote new film releases. The show started as an independently released podcast from 2011 to 13 before being picked up as a professionally produced web video series by Thing X in 2012, continuing after their site merged with Adult Swim's website in 2013. The show moved to HEI Network an independent service in 2021 with funding given by user subscriptions and special event ticket purchases on cinema at the cinema is the hub of a fictional universe that includes the podcast 14 seasons of the video series (laughs) yearly live Oscar specials, a spinoff limited series entitled the trial, (laughs) the spinoff series Decker a movie review app, an on-cinema live tour, and a film entitled Mr. America. The only reason I'm reading all of this information is because I'm new to this. And for those of you already familiar with on-cinema, you probably know more than me. I've only watched maybe a dozen of them. They're five to eight minutes long. It's very hard to explain to someone why some of them would be funny. The humor is more obvious in some than others. I think sometimes what they're parodying is so specific and subtle that I think to some people based on the comments, it seems maybe they're just playing along. I don't know. There's a meta quality to all the comments, but it seems like some people just think that they are actually reviewing movies and they just say the most generic 
nothing about every movie and every review is basically the same. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird ongoing backstory that gets developed over years going on and it's much more of their personal lives. It's amazing. It's just so weird and it it makes fun of two guys doing a movie podcast, which is why I didn't really want to dive in right away because I figured... Rightfully I, so because, yeah, there's no coming back for us now after watching some of this. I said to you when we were watching the episodes that both you and me are both of them at the same time. The we worst are qualities both. of both. Yeah. <laughs> yes, somehow. <laughs> we are both of them. Yes, yeah, so you can check this out on YouTube if you don't subscribe to whatever they do. I don't really understand where you find it. At one point, I thought it just aired on Adult Swim on Cartoon Network, but I don't I don't know that it's, it was ever on TV. I'm sure some of it was at some point. I don't know. But the show and fictional universe have a dedicated cult following of fans who play along with the storylines via social media, often taking sides oh. as, quote, Tim heads or Greg heads. <laughs> Or unity heads for those that do not take a side. It's a lot of fun. It's very meta and weird and unique, but it's also painful. Painful. It's painfully real. (laughs) (laughs) We take it as a shot. Yeah, there's really no other way to take it. So let's talk a little bit about the Roadhouse trailer before we wrap up, because Roadhouse has always been such a big part of the greatest moments in the history of Forever Universe. Look, the original Roadhouse is lightning in a bottle. You're never going to be able to recapture that magic. So when you get to something like this, there's levels, and you're like, the best we could get is something like this, I think. Based on what we saw in the trailer, you get a very strong Fast and Furious vibe, which may be disappointing to some people, but I think ultimately is probably the best route that they could go. Because if you try to be intentionally kitschy, intentionally ironic, you end up sort of in that snakes on a plane world where, yeah, it can be funny and cute, but when you're winking intentionally the whole time, it never is going to feel the same. So you might as well go in a different direction and and be real with it. Yeah, and I mean, if people are disappointed with what this has come to be just from what we've seen so far, I got to tell you, this is a million times better than what I was picturing with the Ronda Rousey version. <laughs> well, I think that was obvious when Jake Gyllenhaal was cast yeah, that we yeah. were going to go a different route. No, I know, but it's a higher level of quality than this could have been. Yeah, so the new Roadhouse comes out next month in March. It's going to be straight to Amazon Prime, unfortunately, because I do think it would be fun to see in the theater. It seems like a missed opportunity to maybe launch a new franchise. If you get lightning in a bottle, you could maybe recapture the fast and furious thing because most people don't remember but the fast and the furious the first one is kind of a remake Mm -hmm. at least the title is i I don't know much about the original movie but i know it has something with cars and sure the title is the same i don't know if the story is really the same or not but i don't know roadhouse is something that people have a lot of affinity for and it doesn't look like total dog shit at least so there's a chance. I don't know why you don't roll the dice with a theatrical run, but, yeah, know. you know, whatever. I know Doug Lyman, the director, was disappointed because apparently the test screenings did well, so they and wanted look, a theatrical I mean, run. It, it seems like it could be fun. I'm cautiously optimistic. My biggest concern is Conor McGregor yeah. seemingly being the... Kind of. He's <laughs> like the Jimmy character, right? I was getting more of the Wade Garrett. Yeah, Wade Garrett. Okay, I thought he was fighting... 
But I could, yeah, I mean, you could be right. Oh, I couldn't okay. tell exactly. I only saw watched it once, and it yeah. was when it first came out, and it was on X or Twitter, so it was small on my phone. I don't, I don't know that I got all the details. So maybe you're right. He was maybe more the villain. I think it was gearing it up as if those two were fighting in a bar. But that, I guess, I could see a scenario where it is. And who knows? Maybe out. McGregor will exceed expectations. I just get a little concerned with that yeah, transition from athlete to actor, mm-hmm. because as you said. When it looked like Ronda was going to be the lead of this movie, Ronda Rousey, for those not, not on a first-name basis with her like I am, <laughs> that was a little concerning. And I I don't have any issue with Ronda Rousey. I know a lot of UFC people hate her because she was sort of propped up and then dismantled pretty quickly and was had a lot of other things, too. But she was sort of a big star. I'm not a big fan of all of her opinions or weird takes on real life events you know i don't you know she had some weird stuff to say about things okay but aside from that she's always been entertaining and i don't hate her or anything but we've seen her act before and it was not great look right. it's just it is what it is and yeah. when she was in the wwe she could barely talk mm-hmm. so no matter what taking her out of the equation was going to be addition by subtraction and then of you course. bring in an actual legitimate movie star I so know. So we'll we'll definitely talk about it once it. Yeah, airs. I think we're gonna have a watch party and yeah. then we'll do a an emergency. We might as well just say it. it's gonna be a give us a second yeah, right. about Roadhouse. You don't even need to come up with that idea, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was always <laughs> in the cards. Anyway, thank you to Aaron for the listener request and the email. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Please follow us on X slash Twitter at GreatestPod. Our email address, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'll read your email on an upcoming episode. Yeah, I really love the creativity that the listeners have been bringing to the emails. And just keep it coming. Tell us about unique experiences that you've had with movies, your relationship with your listener requests, or other movies we've done on the show. Or, like the email we read last episode, you can go out and review... What's new? The Oscar contenders, the the nominations are still somewhat new and fresh. So if you've seen those movies, you can tell us about them. I sure as hell haven't seen them all. No. So uh, our cinephile listeners, let us know what you think about the Oscar nominations. Whatever. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like a sticker, as always, they are free. Listener requests will be $100. Reach out to us if you're interested. Anything else? Oh, no. We're well covered. So, yeah. I think we did okay, considering this was the second time. So if the episode had a weird feel to it, then I'm sorry, but... We're not doing it again. It's very depressing (laughs) to do a two-hour episode and then realize you have to do it again. Within a 48-hour stretch. Right. But onward and upward. Yep. Hopefully that never happens again. Please. (laughs) It will be the end of the show. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
I'm a special agent trained in breaking codes. There's nobody better in the business at breaking secret codes. But my real passion is that I'm the world's biggest archivist of video cassette movies. I've got thousands in my collection. It's unprecedented in the Northern Hemisphere. And then recently, I've embarked on an interesting journey to be the first man to watch 500 movies in 500 days uh, to get in the Guinness Book of World Records. We're actually almost all the way through, and it looks like I am going to break the record. So keep an eye on the news. You'll probably see something about this 